Welcome to Daily Grace. We believe that the Bible is true, trustworthy, and timeless. And we want to help women like you know and love God's Word. The Bible shows us who God is, and who He is changes everything. My name is Joanna. And I'm Stephanie. Come join us as we chat about the truth of God's Word in our everyday lives. Today, we are talking about an incredibly important question for all believers. Can I trust the Bible? We'll get into the nitty-gritty details and history behind the Bible, and ultimately talk about the beauty and glory of God's Word. We'll discuss some terms that may be new, so be sure to refer back to our show notes. We pray that God will use this conversation to instill in you a greater confidence in and love for His Word. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Daily Grace. This is Joanna, and I'm here with my co-host, Stephanie. Hello, hello. Stephanie, why don't you tell us a favorite thing from this week? So my favorite thing this week was having coffee with some really good friends. I just love catching up with people one-on-one, so it was just really refreshing for me. How about you? That's awesome. So mine is a little less exciting, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So I just recently read this book by Tim Challies called Do More Better, and oh, yeah. I am, I'm trying to organize my life. I'm really trying. And he recommended this app slash website called Todoist. And it's like a task management thing. And it has really like changed my days and really? changed my weeks. Yeah, it's really great because, you know, to-do lists, especially electronic ones, you're kind of limited in how you can use them. But this one has like hierarchies mm-hmm. of to-dos. So you can have like a project with yeah. tasks and subtasks and sub-subtasks. Wow. <laughs> so it's really helpful to kind of like, if you have like a big project, you can check off your progress and not just the whole project. That's true. So we do want to go ahead and transition into our topic for today. And we're talking about a question that is really important for all believers. And it's the question of whether or not we can actually trust the Bible. Yeah. On this podcast, you'll hear us talk a lot about knowing and studying and loving the Bible, which we do believe is the ultimate authority on truth. But I mean, if we're going to elevate something as the ultimate authority on truth, it would be kind of wise of us to make sure (laughs) that kind of claim is well-founded, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I think this is a really important topic to discuss, you know, especially as believers, we're staking our faith on our sacred text, the Bible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as believers, it's really important that we're able to communicate why we trust in the Bible as our sacred text. Yeah. So growing up in the church, I never really questioned the validity of the Bible. And I was thinking about this today and I was like, well... Maybe it's just because I wasn't a very rebellious kid and <laughs> the rule followers. I just, yeah, I just like being spoon fed, you know, these Bible stories and it was just easy. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm grateful for having been raised in the church. But now I also realize that it's really important for me to be able to communicate why the Bible is trustworthy and to know for myself. So today we're just going to do that. We're going to talk about why we can trust the Bible. Yeah. And, you know, My experience for a lot of my life, I didn't really question, 
you know, whether or not we can trust scripture. But I think as I got older and I started really wanting to understand things from a very kind of logical perspective, I kind of started Mm -hmm. wondering like, hey, if I am staking my whole life (laughs) on this, on the truth that's in this book, how do I know it's really true? And so, you know, I did go through a bit of a time where I was kind of questioning, you know, is, is this trustworthy? Is this something that, that I, that I should trust? And, you know, I think that we're probably going to have people listening who are from all different kind of backgrounds and have had different kind of experiences. I'm sure Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people just like you, Stephanie, and who are thinking, well, I never really thought about that I shouldn't trust it, right? (laughs) But um, it's so helpful, like you said, to be able to say why it is trustworthy. You know, when other people ask even to be able to say, this is why I trust the Bible. And, you know, for people who maybe are wondering and have never looked into it, this is is a great opportunity for them as well. Yeah, so whether or not you trust in the Bible or you're, like have some distrust, I think that it's important to be able to know why right. you trust in the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. And just a little friendly disclaimer, you know, parts of this episode may sound a bit technical, but like Stephanie said, it's really important for believers to know and communicate basic facts about the Bible, but also to know for ourselves why we value the scriptures so highly. And so a good place to start is realizing that the Bible actually makes some pretty incredible claims about itself. We're coming back to guess what verse? I bet you can't guess. Our theme verse. Second <laughs> Timothy 3. 16 through 17. And it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I feel like we should have this memorized by now, right? We should, yeah. (laughs) So these verses are saying that scripture is breathed out by God. And we use the term inspired to talk about that idea of scripture being God breathed. And, you know, we talked about this in episode one, where we talked about how the Bible is inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and eternal. And we used the acronym SCAN to talk about the sufficiency, clarity, authority, and necessity of scripture, which like we said, is saying that the Bible is enough. It is clear, it is final, and it is necessary. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, we really encourage you to go back and listen to episode one. But the question is, can we trust those claims about the Bible? And before we ask that question, we need to ask what we mean when we talk about the Bible. What is the Bible? Yeah, that's a good question. What is included in the Bible? What is the Bible? And so let's jump right in. The books that are included in the Bible that you are holding in your hand today or the Bible that are often found in hotel drawers, um, that is what we call the canon. Mm -hmm. And canon basically just means measuring rod, which implies that it's a standard. Side note on that, I always thought it was such good marketing that canon cameras used the word canon because it's like the standard of photography. Have you ever thought about that? I just, oh, I love that. I like that. <laughs> Smart Sorry marketing. to all the Nikon users. <laughs> I know. Oh, I'm a Canon user though. Canon all the way. <laughs> 
Yeah, so the canon, these are the books that are the authoritative, inspired, inerrant word of God. And there are 66 books in the Bible. There are 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. And you know, not everyone might know this. So we'll add the names of the books of the Bibles in our show notes. Yeah, so when we look at the Old Testament, this has the same books as are in the Jewish Bible, which is called the Tanakh. And that comes from the Hebrew words Torah, which is the law, Nebi'im, which is the prophets, and Ketuvim, which is the writings. So it takes the first few letters of each of those words to, to make an acronym, essentially. Now, there are a few differences between the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, and the Old Testament. So there are 24 books in the Tanakh versus 39 in the Old Testament. And that's because some of the books in the Tanakh are combined, but it has the exact same content. And so it's ordered differently because the Protestant Old Testament is based off of something called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So in the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, it starts with Genesis and ends in 2 Chronicles. And the Protestant Old Testament begins with Genesis and ends in Malachi. So again, same book, same content, different order. Um, Joanna mentioned the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Jewish Bible. And yes, our Protestant Old Testament is based off the Septuagint. But it's also important to note that the Septuagint included a few extra books that are not included in our Protestant Old Testament. Yeah. And those books that are not included are called the Apocrypha. Yeah, you may have heard this term before, kind of like these like hidden books that people talk about. Yeah, yeah. So why aren't they included in our Old Testament? So even though those extra books, uh, the Apocrypha, had historical and religious purposes, the Jewish people didn't really consider them to be part of the canonical Jewish scripture or the scripture inspired by God. And the early church fathers didn't either. But most importantly, Jesus affirmed the Tanakh as scripture and not the Apocrypha. Yeah. So let's read from Luke twenty four forty four. Jesus says, Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he affirms the law, the prophets and the Psalms as the books that accurately prophesies about himself, about Jesus. So this is actually in reference to what Joanna had said earlier regarding the Tanakh. So it's just an acronym of three Hebrew words, the Torah, which is the law the Nebaim, which is the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which is the writings. And in that verse, it's the Psalms, and that stands for the writings. And basically, the Septuagint that the Protestant Old Testament is based on is the authorized translation of those Hebrew scrolls into Greek. And interestingly, extra fact, none of the New Testament writers quoted from the Apocrypha either. Yeah, so the fact that Jesus himself confirms the Tanakh as scripture to me is like the most convincing evidence. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the Jewish people affirmed these books as scripture, you know, that's pretty convincing, but there's nothing like Jesus himself saying, This is the word of God. And, you know, there's another passage that I think is just really, really convincing and really amazing where Jesus confirms that the Tanakh is what is the scripture and not the extra books in the Septuagint. And this is in Luke chapter 11, verses 49 through 51. So it says, 
Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Okay, uh, I realize that that is probably leaving you super confused because you're probably <laughs> thinking, <laughs> what does that have to do with the Tanakh or with the Septuagint? So let's take a look at what's going on here. Let's break it down a little bit. So Jesus is talking about all the prophets in the Old Testament who were martyred. And he says it begins with Abel and it ends with Zechariah. Now, here's the thing. Chronologically, Uriah was the last of the prophets to be martyred. So the question is, why does he say it's from Abel to Zechariah? Why not from Abel to Uriah? Well, here is where our evidence comes in. So the blood of Abel comes from Genesis 4.10, which is the first book of both the Tanakh and the Septuagint. The blood of Zechariah comes from the stoning of Zechariah in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. So what Jesus is saying is he is saying all of the prophets from the beginning of Scripture, which is Genesis, to the end of Scripture, which he is saying is Second Chronicles. And that is the order of the books in the Tanakh, not in the Septuagint. So essentially what Jesus is saying is that the order of Scripture goes from Genesis to Second Chronicles. And since that is the order of the Tanakh and not of the Septuagint, we can know that Jesus is affirming the books of the Tanakh, right? Those books, not the extra apocryphal ones. He's confirming those as scripture. So that's how we know what books are included in the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? So that's a really good question. What is the New Testament in our Protestant Bibles? It's a great question to ask because the canon was considered closed. Um, if you know, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was more than 400 years of silence. And this was called the intertestamental period. And essentially, there were just no new prophets speaking during that time. So again, why are there more books in the Bible? And this is because Jesus came or in a fancy term, the incarnation. Basically, it's God the Son coming in the flesh, taking upon himself the nature of humanity and fulfilling all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. One thing I've heard that was really helpful was to think of the overall message of the Old Testament as he is coming, he is coming, and then the New Testament saying he is here, he is mm -hmm. here. And so it makes sense that there would be these new books because Jesus was here speaking yeah, and in the New Testament, Jesus claims to be God over and over again, and his deity is affirmed. He has the I am statements in the book of John. You know, he's the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, and so on and so forth. And then he says in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And he says he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And he does, which is a testament to his divinity. So the Old Testament is saying there is a Messiah that's going to come and the Jewish people were waiting for this Messiah to come. Yeah. And then that's why there is a New Testament because the Messiah did come. Right. So, you know, we talk about how the Bible is the word of God. And so when we ask the question, why are there more books after the Old Testament? Well, it's because God himself came to earth in the form of man, right? God incarnate, 
Jesus Christ. So if we have God speaking here on earth, of course we're going to have new books of the Bible, right? We're going to be writing down what Jesus says and what he does because we once had the word of God just, just written down for us in the Old Testament. And now that word is here with us. And so it makes total sense that there would now be a New Testament. And so mm-hmm. God's word in the New Testament era can come from two different sources. One can be Jesus himself, right, speaking. This is God's word, but also from the apostles. So Jesus specifically commissioned apostles. These are the sent ones is what that word means. He specifically commissioned them to speak his words. In John 14, 25 and 26, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And again, speaking to the disciples, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what's going on here? Jesus is saying, after I leave, the Holy Spirit's going to come and is going to guide you into truth, and you will mm-hmm. have authority to speak my words, right? The the Holy Spirit will will give you the power to declare these things and glorify Jesus Christ. And so we have these apostles are, you know, these original 12 disciples, but we also have Paul who writes a lot mm-hmm. of New Testament books, like a lot of New Testament books. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't one of the original 12. So that kind of begs the question, should we trust Paul? And, you know, there are a lot of people who actually want to throw Paul out and say, you know, we're not going to keep his books in the New Testament. But Paul was confirmed as an apostle. So Mm -hmm. for one thing, Jesus Christ, after he had raised from the dead, appears to Paul and calls him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And the other apostles confirm Paul as one of them. Mm-hmm. So the authors that were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the 27 books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Jude, and Paul. And we also have the book of Hebrews, and we actually don't know the author of that book. So the question then is, how did we get the official list, meaning what we see in our Bibles today? So we have two church councils, the Council of Hippo in AD 393 and the Council of Carthage in AD 397. And both of these affirm the New Testament canon. Now, it's important for us to realize that these councils didn't choose the canon or vote on it or decide what would be included in the New Testament, but they simply recognized a canon that had already been established. I think it's important for us to realize that human beings don't pick the books of the Bible, but God ordains the books of the Bible. So we want to make sure we're not talking about this as if they, they chose them, but that they affirmed what God had already set in place. And, you know, there are characteristics of these books of the New Testament canon that affirm that they are indeed the word of God. 
The first one is apostolicity, which is a fun word meaning that it was written by an <laughs> apostle <laughs> um, or close associate of an apostle. And number two is that the writer is confirmed by the acts of God. So for example, Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, right? That is this mm-hmm. writer being affirmed by the acts of God. Um, three is that the book tells the truth about God. So does this book line up with the rest of scripture? You know, we right. talk about how all scripture agrees with itself because it's all the word of God. Number four, does it come with the power of God, the power to comfort, to convict us, to teach us, instruct us, correct us, right? This Mm. is what God's word does. And so there's a certain sense to where, you know, as you read God's word, you know that it's God's word, right? Because of the power that's there. The number five, was it accepted by the people of God? Did the people of God, the early church, share these letters, these books? Did they copy them? Did they distribute them around? Right, And these are kind of five characteristics of these New Testament books. So the question is then, if the words of Jesus really are the words of God, and if God spoke through the apostles, then how can we know that we still have those words? And the issue is that, Back in the day when the books of the Bible were written, there is no printing press, but all of these letters, these books had to be hand copied. And that leaves room for mistakes, right? Human error of writing down the wrong word or the wrong letter. So how can we be sure that we actually have these words? So we have about 5,800 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, which is more than any other ancient writing. So this is all before 500 AD. So we, you know, we have a lot of famous works that we learn in school, like Homer's Iliad and then Plato's Republic. And compared to the New Testament, I mean, the Iliad comes in second place with 643 manuscripts. And then Plato's Republic only has seven Yet we accept those works as perfect works um, from from history. Um, but there are still disputed issues over um, the New Testament. So what do we do about those issues? Yeah, so there are some places where, you know, we are not sure if this word appeared in the original or if it's this word. But here's the thing. We have so many copies, ancient copies, right. that we can resolve most of those issues. And, you know, there are still some that are unresolved, but here is what is really awesome. None of those issues call into question essential doctrines of Christianity. So none of those discrepancies of it could be this word or it could be this word change what we believe about God, about salvation, right? It's nothing that is going to change the important essential doctrines. So essentially, yes, We have the original words. We have the original meaning of the text. And so next we have to ask, okay, we have their words. Are the words accurate? So then it's, can we trust that the Bible is inerrant? I mean, if we say that it's inspired, then yes, yes, we can. And it's because we can trust in God. We know that God cannot lie, that he is all knowing, that he is trustworthy. And that is why we can trust in the words of God. And I think that was a big thing for me. I know we've said it in a few episodes, but if if God is trustworthy, his words are trustworthy. Yeah. The word of God is trustworthy. Right. So 
But then it's, um, you know, how can we know if it's inspired? Yeah, so that is kind of what it comes all down to, right? That we can really trust this Bible if it is actually God's word. We could spend our whole lives studying the history of the Bible, and we still couldn't have a definitive answer to this question just based on facts alone. Yeah. But here is the thing. You do not have to be a historian to confidently believe that the Bible is God's word. And so I want you all, all you listeners, to hear that. I don't want you to get discouraged hearing all these facts and all of these history lessons thinking, oh man, I don't know any of this. Maybe I can't trust the Bible. Here's the thing. We can know that the Bible is God's word because the Bible is self-authenticating. And what this means is that the Bible proves itself to be the word of God. And the only way, the only way that we can truly know that the scriptures are inspired is when we see the glory of God in them. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we know that the Bible is the inspired word of God because we see his glory in it. Just like we know we are saved because we have the Holy Spirit within us. It is the self-authenticating word of God. Right. And that makes me think like you, we know like the or we could know the divine origins of like the universe. Right. Mm. We're just amazed at that. We believe in that. And then we can believe in the divine origin of the word of God. Right. And I just love that verse. Mm. And I also love catechisms, if that wasn't made clear in our oh, episodes. Yes. But me too. <laughs> the Westminster. Yeah. The Westminster Larger Catechism asks this very question. It says, how doth it appear? <laughs> How doth it appear? <laughs> <laughs> How does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? And it says, the scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, mm. by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God by their light and power to convince and convert sinners to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very word of God. So the spirit of God testifies to our spirit Mm -hmm. that this is the very word of God. And you know what? That is fully convincing evidence right there. That'll preach. (laughs) So let me give you an example. Let's say that somebody claims to be the best chef in the entire world. How can you know? You can read some reviews, right? You can go on Yelp and look at pictures of the food. (laughs) But here's the thing. You can listen to all of the logic and all of the history of the chef and the restaurant. But the only way to really know if they are a good cook is to taste their food. 
And it's the same way with the Bible. We can read all of the history. We can go back and hear all of the facts and the logic and the reason why this this has to be God's word. This is trustworthy. But the only way that we can really know if this is God's word is to taste and see that the Mm. Lord is good in his word. And, you know, this kind of glory that we bear witness to, that we see in God's word, this is a peculiar glory. This is where I want to give a little bit of a book recommendation. And there is a book called A Peculiar Glory by John Piper. We'll link that in the show notes. And he talks about this very idea that we can trust the Bible because we see a peculiar glory in it. So the question is, what is it that is so peculiar about the glory of God in his word? So in all other religions, the goal is to get to God, to ascend to God. Mm -hmm. But in the Bible, we see that God descends to us. And not just the glory of majesty and power is seen here, but it is majesty through meekness, exaltation through humiliation, glory through suffering, power through weakness. And this kind of glory is fulfilled in Jesus. So John 1, 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, I love those verses. And, you know, it really is amazing to think about how upside down the kingdom of Christ yeah, it's is. countercultural. Yeah, that, you know, when you think of glory, when you think of majesty, you think of like this person high and lifted up on a throne and, you know, covered in jewels and gold or, you know, maybe even in mm-hmm. our day, just someone who is really famous and has a lot of money, right? This is the kind of glory we think about. But the only glory like that of Christ is found in Jesus Christ, that his glory actually comes out of weakness, right? His willing humiliation, that he, he becomes like us so that he may be glorified and that we may be glorified. I love it. Yeah, it's like the Jewish people, you know, had this expectation of, the king, the Messiah coming. Yeah. And even the disciples up until the very end were thinking that Jesus was going to establish this kingdom yeah. and this army and this, you know, and it's totally upside down. Jesus, you know, on the way to the cross had to lead them and mm-hmm. show them that he was, the kingdom was not what they expected. It was right. like upside down, you know? Yeah. And, but the fact that there were still Jews in the New Testament, like Paul, who believed and believed in Jesus and with all that he knew and expected from the, his like meticulous study of the Old Testament. He believed in Jesus. And I think mm. that just confirms the deity of Christ. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, that kind of transformation yeah. where you have someone who goes from thinking that they are fully justified by following all of the rules and doing all the right things, even Paul going to the point of persecuting Christians and tracking them yeah. down and then turns and begins to preach the same gospel that's only the power of the gospel, right? That's only the right. power of God working to change hearts. And, you know, that leads yeah. right into our second point about this glory is that we can see the evidence of the glory of God in scripture because we see how it transforms people who read it. Mm-hmm. You know, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so this verse talks about how, you know, as we see God in his word, we become transformed into his image. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that we can all probably think about somebody that we know who we can just see that their lives are marked by God's word, that they mm-hmm. live out this, this life. There's a sweetness to it, um, even in the midst of pain. But I think we can all think of someone who we can, we can look at and say, I see an extra dose of the image of God in that person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those yeah. people who you just you you taste a bit of eternity when you're around them because mm-hmm. of the the communion that they have had with God through his word and it's this this sweetness that's contagious. And you know, my study of scripture, I know that it has transformed me. And you know, I've talked about this a little bit, but I think that the biggest change that I have seen in studying God's word and coming to know him through his word mm-hmm. is a new joy that has yeah. been produced in me. A joy that comes out of cynicism, a joy that really can't be explained, um, but that is just rooted yeah. and grounded in love. Right. Makes sense that it's like you're reflecting the image of Christ. You know, it's not of this world. Right. And that's what is contagious. You know, you're talking about someone with contagious joy or an extra dose of the image of Christ. It's just, you know, it's not of this world. Um, Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, people who can rejoice in suffering because of their faith and their relationship in Christ. I mean, they make much of Jesus, you know, through things that just don't make sense in this world. I mean, and I think we could think of those extreme stories of people who were drug addicts and totally changed or, you know, but I think it's, it's also important to note that you can be an ordinary person mm. that didn't experience much tragedy or you were still transformed. We were all right. sinners. I guess that's what I'm saying. Cause even in my own life, you know, I may not have lived to an extreme, but oh my word, I will be the first to say I am a chief sinner mm. and, um, whether that's struggling with pride or my own forms of addiction, it might not be a hard drug or anything, but, you know, we all have um, those things that we wrestle with. And I will say that my um, study of God's word has, it was, it transformed me in that it broke down strongholds in my life that I couldn't have willed myself to break mm-hmm. on my own. Um, so, that, you know, it says the Bible is living and active and it truly has been living and active in my own little ordinary life. Mm. Basically, no matter what your testimony is, you know, the scripture 
has transformed you in one way if you're a believer. Um, so moving on, I mean, another way that we see the glory in scripture is its remarkable unity. And Joanna mm-hmm. said this before, you know, the Bible agrees with itself. Um, the whole of the Bible agrees with itself. There's no contradictions there. That's why we can say that scripture interprets scripture and there's continuity, there's unity. And that's pretty incredible if you think about it. I mean, more than 40 authors over 1,500 years on three different continents in different literary styles all contributed to the Bible, all one message mm. of God's redemption. I mean, that is just incredible to me. Yeah, it is so crazy to me just to think about all of those variables that come together into this one message. And, you know, I know we talked in episode four about the story of scripture, this meta narrative. And it really is amazing once you think about scripture in light of this big story and you see how it all connects. And it's just all the more amazing when you give us those stats about all the different cultural backgrounds and time periods and locations and how could that possibly all contribute to one message? I think that the only answer is that it's all the word of God. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like that alone is evidence enough, right? 1500 years, 40 authors, human authors, all inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this unified message. I don't know. It's mind blowing to me. Okay, and then so kind of going back to, you know, Second Corinthians, that verse, it said about how God um, opens our eyes to Scripture. Ephesians 1.18 says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in his saints. And I don't know about you, but I felt like that too. Like I I feel like I had that moment when the scales fell off my eyes, kind of like Mm. it says with Paul on the road to Damascus or after. Yeah. And how the scriptures came alive to me. And like I said, I couldn't will myself to break strongholds in my life. But once my eyes were open to scripture, there was power there to transform me. And it wasn't that I took off the shackles from my eyes. It was really like, yes, the Lord enlighten the eyes of my heart right and so this is just a call for us to seek god in his word ask him to open our eyes to see his glory there and you know it's not just a feeling or something elusive and um it's nothing like that it's nothing more than the glory of god and that there's nothing more true yeah and i think that that's important to realize you know that if you are looking for evidence, right? That this is the word of God, God's glory in his word, God revealing that glory to you. It's not like that isn't good evidence. That's the best evidence that there Mm -hmm. is, right? That is the most trustworthy evidence. There is nothing like you just said, Stephanie, there is nothing more true than the glory of God. So there is nothing that is going to be better evidence than the glory of God in his word. And, you know, it makes me think of Jeremiah 29, 13. And, you know, I know that there have been times in my life when I have felt spiritually blind or at least like my senses, my spiritual senses were deadened. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever experienced that before, but, you know, I think that there's a lot of hope in Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
And again in Matthew 7, 7 through 8, says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And there is no better thing that we could request for ourselves than to be shown the glory of God, right? The glory of his salvation, the glory of his word. And so if you are feeling like, you just aren't seeing it. If you are feeling like, I don't know, I hear them talking about this peculiar glory, but all I see are words on a page. You know, all I see is a book. Mm-hmm. I want you to hear that you can approach God and you can come to him. You can pray and you can ask him to reveal himself to you. And he promises that if you seek him with all your heart, you will find him, that he answers those requests um, and he he will reveal himself if you if if you will seek him yeah he's definitely not a far off god that you know doesn't want to be known he right. gave us his word yeah. so that we can know him exactly yeah yeah so yeah i t- definitely encourage you to um just ask the spirit to illuminate your mind and your heart um as you read and you know, he is faithful and he is a good God that wants to be known. So with mm-hmm. all of that in mind, just to kind of top off this kind of technical um, episode, Joanna, what is or what has been the most compelling thing to you that has, you know, helped you trust the Bible? You know, when we got to the second half of our conversation about this peculiar glory that's when kind of my heart was stirred and I got this fire in my belly. You know, this is what really gets me excited. And I think that the reason for this is because I look back over my life and I think about these moments when I had joy in learning Mm -hmm. about God for the first time. And I can think of a few times when I read a passage for the first time and it's like I... I heard something that was like, where has this been, right? This this yeah. beauty and this glory that it's like, how have I not seen this before? And just these moments of overwhelming joy and rejoicing. Yeah. And I know that that is because of the glory of God and his word. And that is God revealing himself to me through his word. And so, you know, the most compelling thing to me that makes me trust the Bible is like we've been saying, the glory that I see there and the joy that God produces in me um, as a result of seeing who he is. And, you know, I think that the way that 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 happens is by two things, us being in the word, even when it doesn't feel that way. You know, because I'll be honest, I don't open my Bible every day and get struck with this like, dancing and rejoicing moment you know i you don't, don't i i don't <laughs> just kidding <laughs> it'd be nice to get my, my morning exercise in every day right? right no but it's not always like that and that's okay but i think that it's important that we continue to seek god in his word and that yeah. we ask him to to reveal himself to us and you know sometimes that looks like rejoicing and sometimes that looks like asking God questions. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that looks like just storing away truth, storing it away in our hearts, um, knowing that God is faithful um, and that 
every minute that we spend in his word, that God redeems that. Um, yeah. that, that every, every moment that we spend studying God's word, learning about who he is, none of it is wasted, but all of it is profitable, even if we don't see it now. Totally agree. I mean, it's helpful to know these, these facts and, you know, um, realize that there is historical evidence for the Bible and, you know, all of the numbers, you know, saying how, like we said, like how can all of these human authors from all of these different continents and cultural and literary backgrounds and over 1500 years come up with this unified story? I mean, those are compelling things, I think, as a more science-driven person. But I will say the most compelling thing for me has, like you said, was really experiencing for myself how the Bible is truly living and active. Passages that I have read growing up you know, same things, reading, reading, reading. And then once I came under the Lordship of Christ and, you know, said, yes, Lord, you're my Savior and you're my Lord and I want to live um, daily under your Lordship. Like that was a very significant moment in my spiritual walk. And that was when I felt like the Holy Spirit was indwelling me and really opened my eyes to the truth in his word. And, um, like you said, the joy that was there, that's what compels us to get up every day and to read and to study, you know, even if we're not feeling anything, it's not yeah. feelings, it's a knowing. That's why we talk about having a knowing faith, you know, and, and the delight is there, the joy is there. But, um, and even the fact that as you study God's word, one, you can never exhaust it. You'll always be learning hmm. about his character and his nature and, and, and then two is how your love grows. I mean, if it weren't living and active, like would our love grow like over this word? I don't think so. Just from my own life and how it has transformed me. It has just, like you said, it's really witnessing and seeing the glory of God in his word. Yeah. And you know, all of this that we've been talking about, it really does matter. Um, it really does matter for every part of our lives, for our everyday yeah. lives, right? Like like Stephanie said at the beginning, this book, right, this Bible is the authority on what is true, right? It gives us the foundation of our faith. And if we are gonna stake our faith on something, we need to know that we can indeed trust it. And I, I hope and pray that throughout this conversation that God has stirred in you um, a greater trust in his word and a greater affection in his word. And, you know, my encouragement to you once again would be to go and read it um, and to, yeah. to keep reading it and to keep asking God to show you his glory there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And we want to remind you that you can see all of our show notes. There'll be lots of show notes for today, I'm sure, at dailygracepodcast.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram at The Daily Grace Co. And don't forget to download the new Daily Grace Co. app for Apple or Android, where you can follow along with our Bible studies and read our blog posts and interact with other women who are a part of this community. We hope that you ladies have a wonderful week and we'll talk to you next Tuesday. 